are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and Losing Together too. This is Season 5, Episode 8, Beloved Community, Assemble! I'm Adam Thomas, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Adam. How you doing today? It's a very rainy day on we, right now in recording land. It's Labor Day weekend, so I'm enjoying a very lazy day off with my husband. Oh, excellent. What about you? That's fantastic. I'm trying to get all of everything ready for uh, the launch of our program year at church. So I am not taking a day off. Oh, boy. Uh, but I am taking an, an hour to talk to you, which makes me very happy. We only have a couple more episodes left in season five. This one, one more, and then some kind of fun way to end the season, which we haven't figured out yet. <laughs> and uh, uh, we'll talk about our, of course, we'll get to our main topic in a minute. But uh, Carrie, you wanted to give us her scripture quote today? Oh, sure. Our scripture quotation today is from the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 24 through 26. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. And our quotation from Nerd Canon comes from the short-lived but wonderful series Firefly. Uh, this is from the episode Our Mrs. Reynolds. Uh, the con artist Saffron says, everybody plays each other. That's all anybody ever does. We play parts. And Malcolm Reynolds says, you got all kinds of learning and you made me look the fool without even trying. And yet here I am with a gun to your head. That's because I've got people with me, people who trust each other, who do for each other, and ain't always looking for the advantage. I think you just wanted to do Nathan Fillion. <laughs> he definitely has a very particular speech cadence because he's canadian it's not like that's what he actually sounds like that's true yeah he's not actually a space cowboy are you <laughs> no, telling me he is not actually a space not? cowboy oh man so this term beloved community is one that has become popularized in a number of ways it originally came from 20th century philosopher theologian josiah royce who was a founding member of the fellowship of reconciliation it was then popularized by dr martin luther king jr to talk about the vision for the work of nonviolent protests that he and others were doing. And recently, it's been adopted and inhabited a lot by the Episcopal Church, the denomination Adam and I are in, as one of the initiatives of the Episcopal Church worldwide. Yeah, Dr. King spoke about the concept of beloved community many times. Uh, one of the most important times was uh, when he was helping to start the uh, Montgomery bus boycotts in 1956. And he said this then, we must remember as we boycott that a boycott is not an end within itself. It is merely a means to awaken a sense of shame within the oppressor and challenge his false sense of superiority. But the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of men. 
Dr. King's understanding of beloved community was very much about creating throughout the world the spirit of nonviolence uh, so that even when people were in conflict with one another, they didn't resort to violent means to resolve those conflicts, but instead, through mutual support and upbuilding, came to agreement uh, through the ways of love and peace. Uh, and we're going to take that idea and expand on it a little bit today because some of the properties that we're talking about, even in the uh, nerd quote, you know, there was a gun in that nerd quote, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. so the properties we're going to talk about do have violence in them, but we're going to be focusing on the teams that have been created in these properties and seeing how these individuals have come together to shape and form a, a way of looking at uh, our diverse communities. And some of these, the, th the properties we're going to be talking about are beloved of me and definitely Adam and probably our listeners of the podcast, because there, I think there's something fundamentally compelling about the creation of teams. We named this episode, Beloved Community Assemble, kind of an homage to the Avengers, which is, you know, one of many kind of gangs of misfits that all come together for a greater purpose. Um, it's closely tied in some ways to the concept of a found family, which I know we've talked about before in the pod and is popularized, especially in the queer community for finding relationships outside a traditional family structure, basically letting the kind of love that a good family would have for one another move outside the restrictive bonds of blood and become inclusive of all people who are looking to participate in some kind of relationship of trust and mutuality. The idea for this episode came from the book, The Church Cracked Open by the Reverend Stephanie Spellers, which is a phenomenal short little book that came out uh, in 2021. And she mentions that if you sat down with her, she could talk about how the Avengers, uh, she could talk about the beloved community through the Avengers. And Carrie and I were like, oh, that's a cool idea. Let's do that. Um, but I wanted is to just- she uh, a secret nerdy Christian? <laughs> uh, maybe. Uh, so let's, uh, I'm going to go ahead and just read a quotation from this wonderful book, uh, again, the church cracked open. Speller says, people are aching the world over for beloved community. You don't have to be religious to long for it. There is something elemental and compelling about communities of people who help one another to grow into all that they were created to be, where each person is as committed to the other's flourishing and to the flourishing of the whole where the members are willing to sacrifice their own comfort and even lives for the sake of the other and for the dream they share. You don't have to be religious to seek beloved community. I believe we humans are created with a homing device that begins to hum and light up when we see individuals and communities driven not by ego, but by self-giving love. And those homing devices are definitely lit up in me when I watch movies like The Avengers, when I read Lord of the Rings, when I watch Stranger Things, and I see people who are drawn together from different circumstances and committed to a common goal. And there is conflict in them. Certainly we've seen that in the Avengers franchise, but that shared goal of what they're aiming for, which in these are mostly, you know, we're, we're watching the good guys. We're watching the folks who are committed to justice or the restriction of how evil can work in their lives. And there's something very compelling about that. I want to be in these communities. I want to spend time with them and live in their heads for a little while. 
Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how uh, Spellers says the release of ego is one of the important things to form beloved community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when if we want to start with the Avengers, uh, what we see when the Avengers come together for, at first is there's a whole bunch of egos in the room that oh, yeah. are all banging against each other. Of course, starting with the biggest ego of them all, which is Tony Stark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've talked about Tony uh, on the podcast before and his arc uh, all the way to his self-sacrificial end in in Avengers Endgame. But when we first meet Tony in the Avengers movie, uh, he is poking fun at the Incredible Hulk, trying to get Banner to turn into the Hulk. He and Thor have this crazy fight where they are like knocking down a forest in Germany, mm-hmm. throwing each other around. Uh, and Captain America is there too. And he's like, guys, come on, we can, we can sort this out. Right. Uh, but it, but it really begins with these egos bumping up against each other. And I think it goes to show that when they're acting as individuals, when Tony Stark as the CEO of his own company, having inherited massive amounts of wealth and having more than his, well, having quite a lot of intelligence on his own genius levels of capabilities and intelligence that they're in charge of their own destinies. They're used to having their way. They're used to being able to set the course of things and prioritize and go where they want to go. Their early experiences being a part of a team means compromise or what um, we learn from stranger things means being halfway happy, halfway happy. Yes. Yeah. Um, when you when we meet these characters in the first Avengers movie, uh, they all are coming from these various circumstances. You know, Cap has literally just woken up from the 70 years in the ice uh, and has been fed a lie that he's still in the 1940s. Uh, at the end of his standalone movie, he's busting out of this shipping container basically and he's in Times square thor is coming in to track down loki because loki is the bad guy in this movie black widow is off doing her own mission uh, hawkeye gets taken control of by the, the bad guys take control of hawkeye and uh and then banner is like don't even i you don't want to see the other guy um <laughs> and they have they keep butting up against each other and and fighting and trying to figure out what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, and it isn't until they have the fight on the helicarrier and they reach the sort of the low point of the Avengers movie where they're able to come together as the team. Uh, and it's the death of Phil Coulson that brings them together and allows them to check their egos at the door. It's their mutual respect and love for this character who in the standalone movies had been bringing them together. And he's just a human, you know, he's a good agent, but he's, he doesn't have any special powers. And throughout the rest of the franchise, we'll see Captain America, who is probably the one with the least amount of ego. He very much has a soldier's mentality from World War II era where he is fighting for the just for for the safety of you know millions of people kind of always try to bring them back to that vision of what they're doing he is in some ways the heart and the glue of the avengers as we referred to in the in our opening um that idea that you know well we, we're up against difficult odds but if we lose we'll lose together that being together is the most important thing so when they come together in the first Avengers movies, Nick Fury 
nudges them. Mm-hmm. We find out a little bit later in the movie that um, the Captain America playing cards that, or excuse me, the Captain America trading cards that Phil Coulson had been collecting weren't on his person when he was killed. But Nick Fury had taken them out of his locker and, and gotten them bloody and then tossed them on the table so that he could <sighs> nudge the team into, you know, trusting each other and, oh, man, and getting, all, about that. getting all together. <laughs> and um, Maria Hill says, you know, they, those were in his locker. Right. And and uh, Nick Fury says something like, yeah, they needed a push. Oh, they needed man. a push to get to, to be together. And yeah, he, yeah. So Fury does play a little bit on their on their love for Coulson um, there. But then they do come together at the Battle of New York and they check their egos at the door, each taking their own role, their own um, each doing the thing that they're best at. And they end up winning the battle. And later it gets complicated because although they are united in that moment, we'll see later they disagree on what is what is the goal? What is the best way to protect and preserve, you know, the world essentially? Mm-hmm. That's where we get the plot of civil war. And part of what I think of in beloved community in our lives is essentially checking in with what what our vision is, what is our shared vision for where we want to be going as a community, as a church, as people moving in the world. And that's where practices like studying scripture and meditating on God's word and being guided by God's dream of the world can give us a shared vision. Otherwise we end up at each other's throats, kind of like in the Avengers. And it's interesting that you would use the this the phrase shared vision because mm-hmm. in the the second Avengers movie, Age of Ultron, it is the creation of the vision. <laughs> Oh yeah, the totally actual, meant that. You know, the yeah. actual creature called the Vision that brings the team back together after Ultron's robots have kind of ransacked everything. And we know that we can trust Vision because he he can wield Thor's hammer. And he just hands Thor's hammer to Thor and is like and everybody's like, "Oh, I guess he's okay." But I really like what you said about that shared vision and and it's not something that you have to um, cling to it's something that can be reevaluated again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's more about how do we mutually up, uh, mutually build each other up as we are having some sort of conflict. Um, there's destructive conflict and there's constructive conflict, and beloved community shapes its conflict in a constructive manner. This is definitely going to come up in the book club. So I'll refrain from talking too much about the long way to a small angry planet. But what I like about beloved community, what's so compelling about it and why we quoted from the first letter to the Corinthians is that the beloved community embraces diversity. It welcomes different members of the body, different parts that have different functions. They're united in the ultimate goal. Um, but they have differences among them. And like you said, the differences can lead to conflict, but as long as it's done lovingly, healthily, constructively, does not erupt into violence, it can push the community along and shape it and bring it to new places. And that's where we can bring in the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. We have these nine companions uh, and they represent five peoples in middle earth the hobbits the dwarves the elves the men and gandalf who you know you don't realize what he is in the actual book but if you read more you know he's a, yeah. a myar kind of ain't a human cool cool neat creature in tolkien's lore but um <laughs> they all come together uh to 
bring the ring where it needs to go to be destroyed. And they do have conflict within their group. Some of it coming from the exterior nature of the ring itself, others coming from the conflicts that the different peoples have historically with one another. I mean, that's Legolas and Gimli's story throughout mm-hmm. the, the Lord of the Rings. Um, and, and some of it is just uh, the prejudices of the the members of the fellowship you know looking down on the hobbits and saying mm-hmm. we the, they're children they mm-hmm. really shouldn't be with us here uh, even though i'm pretty sure the hobbits are older than um boromir i think oh yeah probably older than boromir maybe <laughs> not, not, not older old, than not older they're not aragorn. older than, than aragorn i know that but yeah but they're quite um, they're quite old yeah they're, they're like not in children. their 50s yeah yeah which for a hobbit is around the time that one might consider moving out and having a life of one's own. <laughs> they age a little differently than us humans. But regardless, they yet you're right, they overcome that prejudice as the hob you know, Frodo is the one who says, I will take the ring. Like he realizes he's the only one who has doesn't have the ego, um, who could safely get the ring. And although that will be challenged. Gandalf points out that you know the hobbits always surprise him. You can learn all there is to know about them in a in a day or a week, but then after centuries, they'll still surprise you. And the hobbits becoming the ones who are the steadfast ones, who are kind of the heart of the group that everyone else orbits around and protects. They are the ones who inhabit, maybe even in their own society, a bit more of that beloved community. Yeah, except for their, the Sackville yeah. Baggins. Oh, the Sackville Baggins is, yeah. yeah. Anti-beloved community. <laughs> Lobelia. Give her back the spoons. <laughs> they took the spoons. Took all uh, the spoons. Come um, on. Okay. Through through the Digress. course of the actual book, Fellowship of the Ring, when the Fellowship is together for most of the story, we see them um, arguing with one another, agreeing with one another, uh, supporting each other, and they're all unified in their purpose up until the very end of the story when the fellowship breaks down mm-hmm. and it breaks down because they no longer have this kind of agreement about what they're doing with the ring. Um, because Boromir wants to take the ring to Minas Tirith. Gandalf is gone. He can't help them at this point in the story. Frodo thinks, okay, the best way for me to protect the ring is I'm just going to take it by myself mm-hmm. without anybody else. And I'm just going to go all the way to Mount Doom alone. Um, and then the orcs attack and everything goes wrong. Uh, and once they reach that point of the story, that disintegration of the fellowship, um, what we're really seeing is the ring's power has broken the fellowship. And when we think about how, how would that, how would the ring be manifested in our own lives in an in our own communities Hmm. um it would be manifested in uh how we are choosing uh, to use our power the ring is all about power um you can uh boromir just thinks that the ring is going to be able to save the 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 people of gondor um because if he can just take that he'll have enough power to save the people of gondor um and so the ring has this corrupting influence Hmm. and power can corrupt in our own communities, if we are accessing it incorrectly. But we've talked before in the podcast about how to have a relationship with power that is constructive. And I think that the beloved community um, utilizes power in that uh, the idea of power with 
Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You know, the idea that uh, we can together wield a particular type of power that once again builds up people, builds up the community so that it can be a force for good in the world, for change and for that reconciliation that Dr. King was talking about in the quotation we had earlier. It makes me think of small churches that suddenly receive a large monetary gift and whereas when they had limited resources, they were able to coexist and have more of a shared vision. Suddenly when their equilibrium's upset, there is a lot of conflict on what to use with this, with these new funds or, you know, what is essentially power and can cause, um, and one example I can think of causes a great deal of strife because they're unable to realize, to they get, they get the human equivalent of a ring of power and are unable to come to a conclusion together and it can tear people apart. You know, Boromir, the moment he thinks he's able to get away with it, suddenly wants to grasp that power and use it for what he sees as the only real option because he still doesn't embrace until the very end the strength and power of the hobbits. He doesn't believe that that's a viable plan. Right. And then when Boromir does repent, mm -hmm. he lays down his life to save Merry and Pippin. Um, and then has this wonderful moment of reconciliation with uh, Aragorn as he's dying. Uh, and he recognizes how he had put the fellowship in jeopardy through his own thirst for that particular type of power. Um, so within the Avengers, we see the release of ego mm -hmm. in the Lord of the Rings. We see the, uh, how power can, can corrupt the community. And the embrace uh, and, of diversity. Mm -hmm, and the embrace of diversity. Uh, what about in Stranger Things? I, I think maybe this is where we could talk about this, the concept of the love, you know, of, of how we come together as a as a team. Well, what I like about Stranger Things is it is compelling. It's a group of nerdy misfit children and then eventually adults. And then each season keeps adding in new side characters, possibly to the detriment of the plot. But I enjoy it. And they're originally like explicitly expressed as an adventuring party. Mike says to Max in season two, I'm our paladin, Will's our cleric, Dustin's our bard, and Lucas is our ranger, with Elle eventually becoming the what he calls a mage, but maybe you'd call a sorcerer. Um, and Max not really fitting into that. And so each of them has different skills, has different um, abilities, and being childhood friends, they are surrounded and united by this love that gets kicked into high gear when Will disappears. They are the only ones who are really committed to finding him and searching for him aside from his mother. One of the things about Stranger Things that that really is lovely, again, yes, to the detriment of the storytelling sometimes, is the uh, addition of cast members over the course of the seasons that they are able to incorporate new members into the team. You know, it's not it it doesn't just stay those four boys who are playing D and D in Mike's basement, you know, because they they add L and the first season, it, a lot of the plot surrounds, you know, Lucas and Dustin being like, wait a second, specifically Lucas is like, we can't trust her. We don't we have not we don't know who she is, but then they do come to trust her in the second season. It's the addition of Max. You know, um, and then in the older the older group of kids, you know, they bring in Steve, who at the beginning of this of the first season seems to be just sort of like the jerk bully, you know, but he ends up being an integral uh, part of the team and he really grows up 
uh, you know, he jokes about being the babysitter all the time, but he really loves these other kids. Right. And he shows such sac- self-sacrificial love for for them, for Nancy, for the group as a whole throughout the course of the series. Yeah. Then they add uh, Robin in season three um, and then, a, you know, a couple more folks in season four. Uh, um, and every time they add this new character, the um, the storytelling grows because we now have more experiences and more diversity, as you said, you know, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Robin being uh, a character who's questioning her sexuality mm-hmm. and trying to figure out um, what, uh, you know, who she loves and what that means for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what we get to see that through Steve's eyes, um, as he kind of bumbles along with, wait, what, what, what now? What's wait, going she, on? So she's not really questioning her sexuality. Steve is trying to grapple with her sexuality, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like how they fit together if they're not, you know, coworkers anymore, they're yeah. not romantic partners. What are they? Their best friends They're and friends. coworkers. <laughs> um, and so I think what we learn in Stranger Things is that this that the love that you have for your friends within this community doesn't mean that 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 love is limited. You know, that the love that makes the beloved community the beloved community is a love that is expansive and a love that is always reaching out beyond its borders. So that it's always willing and 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 hopeful to expand out, which is such an important thing I think for growing up, especially if you are like the kids in Stranger Things, having like one set of friends that like in one town where you've grown up and lived with forever. I know Adam and I have talked about this. I think on the pod about our different experiences growing up, and mine is much more like the Stranger Things kids. I had like the same friends from grade three onwards, and what I love about Mike and Lucas's relationship is they're the oldest friends. Um, They live close by. They're in the same kind of wealthier neighborhood compared to Will and Dustin's houses, which are further, a little bit further out. And their relationship is tested. Their loyalties of who's the best friend changes and has to be reestablished and talked about. And then they both get girlfriends. And it shows, you know, then there's tension later when. Will just wants to sit in the basement and play D&D, which, you know, is a great hobby. But the other two boys want to go out and buy gifts for their girlfriends and talk about their girlfriends. All of that is such a big part of growing up of, you know, who you keep, who you grow into, who you stay in relationship with and how those relationships change over time. So as we're as we're kind of peeling back the layers of some of these groups that we're talking about, we're seeing how we can inhabit this concept of beloved community, both as Dr. King talks about it, but also how it's been expanded within the the way that the church has has um, kind of um, employed that term. Um, you know, we're emptying our, ourselves of ego, which has been a mm-hmm. theme this season. We've talked mm-hmm, about kenosis mm-hmm. a couple of times. Um, we're dealing, we're, we're understanding and celebrating how valuable diversity is in all of its manifestations. We're trying to have a, re- a relationship with power that is helpful and not harmful. And we're also seeing that love, you know, expands us out uh, to embrace all, uh, you know, all people that could be part of that community, not just the insular few. Mm-hmm. Um, what else, anything, anything else we want to do as we, as we wrap up the conversation? I think just remembering all of those concepts for 
being members of churches, not, you know, of the worldwide church, but also of our local or the universal church um, outside of time and space, but also in our own particular communities. I've been in churches where they say, oh, those people are new. Like, I don't, I don't know them. And they, those people have been going to that church for like 10 years. Um, we can get stuck sometimes in thinking of who's, who's in and who's out, who's in our group and what does that group do? But what, you know, if we want to be ever embracing and ever growing and relational with one another, it's important to reach beyond ourselves, not being cliquish, not being exclusive, but having a church be a place with semi-permeable boundaries where people come in and go out, um, where we're kind to one another and not just kind, but we deeply love each other. And that means sometimes checking our egos at the door, sometimes compromising, remaining united in that love that guides us and shapes us. Yeah. And, and recognizing that that love, it's not like wishy-washy love that is just like intense liking of things. You know, we're not necessarily just talking about, uh, um, affection, but that's part of it. Yeah. You want to have affection for the people who are around you. Of course, that's a part of it, but love in the sense of beloved community, um, has a much stronger definition. Dr. King says, uh, again, one of his more famous quotations, power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice and justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. Um, and so, when we're talking about beloved community, we're not just talking about um, giving people hugs. We're talking about treating people fairly, treating people with equity, uh, you know, fighting for for justice and uh, for and being vulnerable, being honest, uh, and working together to make not just our own small communities beloved, but sending that belovedness out into the rest of the world. In our book club this time, we are going to be reading the chapters Hedra Ka, Seven Hours, and Hard Reset on The Long Way to a Small, Angry Planet. Here's a quick recap. As the crew arrives at the small, angry planet of Hedra Ka, Toom, a Taremi guard of the New Mother, wrestles with contrary thoughts. While he and his people value harmony to the point where they kill those who disagree with them, he can't help but wonder why they are letting a group so diverse and disparate as the Galactic Commons interfere with their pattern. Unknowingly, Rosemary echoes these thoughts, voicing them to her crewmates at a welcome reception when she sees her father's guns held by the Taremi. As the Wayfarer prepares to tunnel back to common space, Toom takes matters into his own hands, shooting the cage around the soon-to-be tunnel, the harbinger of change. As the cage collapses, the Wayfarer tumbles through. Wrestling their way through the sublayer, the crew work as though their lives depend on it. The Voxes are down, so the techs don't have Lovey to help them with repairs, which are stacking up at an alarming rate. Ohan fight to maintain control of their weakening body while Dr. Chef gives them ever more dangerous medical help, and Sissix pushes the ship to the limit to navigate the space collapsing around them. As they near the exit, Ohan faint one final time and can't be brought back until Dr. Chef injects them with the cure from the heretical cyanats. Awakening with a jolt, they shout out the final heading and Sissix rockets them back into space. As everyone takes stock of the damage, Jenks wildly calls for help. Lovey is down and she's not waking up. 
It's bad. As Pepper arrives to fix the ship, the techs use everything they have to repair Lovey. Jenks risks himself by continuously patching into her core to speak with her, to be with her as Lovey experiences the machine equivalent of a stroke. She's scared and confused, lost and uncertain what is happening. Finally, one option is left, a hard reset. When Lovey wakes back up, she has two options. She could see her old memory files and reincorporate them into herself, emerging as the Lovey they know and love. Or she could unknowingly junk the files and wake up as a generic Lovelace. After the longest 10 minutes of Jenks's life, she wakes up and she doesn't remember him or anything. Okay, so it doesn't actually say yet that... Uh... Dr. Chef gave Ohan the cure. It just says, a, I, know. I just looked it up. Black canister, yeah. top drawer, third from the left, go. We all know what it is. Oh, goodness. Becky Chambers is delightful, but she's not the most <laughs> subtle plot foreshadower. Everything kind of has a lesson or a all right. well, we'll, back. we'll wait to tackle. Gun. Yeah, we'll wait to tackle Ohan's uh, <clears throat> cure next time because there's actually a fallout due to it. Sure. Uh, that's not in these three chapters, but uh, I I love to hear what you think about um, the getting into the head of the Taremi. Oh boy, it's terrifying. And if there's one species that is not the beloved community, I would say it's the Taremi. The absolute surface, like just below the surface violence that comes through in the few scenes we have from I'm calling him Tomb. I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, Tomb's perspective is horrifying. Just the the merest hint that someone is out of line in disagreement. And as he struggles with his own thoughts of, you know, why are we really doing this? Just goes, I feel like if you were a Taremi, you would just be on edge all the time. I think it's interesting that they're herbivores too. Like they're eating plants, but I feel like this kind of is like a carnivorous uh, instinct. Yeah, but well, and they do, my... but they also tear each other's throats out when they. It's true. Yeah, so maybe interesting. They're omnivores. They're, they're omnivores. <gasps> maybe they're a. Maybe they're like us. It's like oh. a. They're like an analog of humans. Yeah, the okay. the Taremi really are the antithesis of the Galactic Commons, though, right? Mm -hmm. Because they exist. That what they call harmony mm -hmm. is not harmony. It's melody. All right, because a melody is one. Theory. A melody is one line of music that they're all singing. It's Harmony, melody where, where they break the fingers of anyone playing yeah. a different tune. <laughs> right. Harmony, on the other hand, is many voices singing different things that all sound nice together. And in order to create harmony that is interesting, guess what you need? Dissonance. So what they actually have is not harmony at all. It's 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 a single melody that is suffocating their species. And at the same time, it's the way their species is. So we, you know, as humans are bringing our own preconceptions into saying that that's bad and wrong. Um, and what Becky Chambers has been telling us the whole book is, mm -hmm. you know, different species have different ways of being and we have to be able to respect that. And at the same time, we see that even within their own society, the Taremi are having trouble holding on to that, uh, that fundamentalism. And the galactic commons as a example of harmony invites 
invites dissonance, invites different perspectives, as long as they can coexist based on those expectations. So they have, you know, people in the galactic commons disagree with one another's social and cultural mores, but depending on the context and the certain part of space they're in, as we've explored with the Quaylins, they respect those rules. Here, the galactic commons is purposely engaging with a group of people that do not embrace that same um, perspective and are willing to to sh- essentially shut down the connection. Well, at least Tomb is wants to shut down the connection between his people and these, you know, harbingers of change. Um, and Rosemary's quietly voiced dissent, where she's like, "I'm not even sure we should be doing this. We're just like the Galactic Commons is just like my father. We're willing to engage and just to get stuff." Where, mm-hmm. You know, the GC wants Ambi. My father wanted Ambi, this this very important resource that powers so much of the galaxy. Um, if they had just let the Taremi be, they could respect the culture and how it is. But when they invite them into their own type of community, that's where the trouble comes into. And unfortunately, the Wayfarer is essentially caught in the crosshairs of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the Taremi, Huil. I'm going to say, Go for it. Uh, says so many ships, so many ideas within them. How do they do it? I wonder how do they achieve harmony knowing that false notions walk beside them? I do not believe they do. I believe they exist in chaos, each following their own ideas, each serving a clan of one. Uh, so recognizing that the GC has a very different way of being. Uh, Huil seems curious about it, honestly. But then once that curiosity rises to a certain level, uh, Huil bats it back down. Nope, I mm-hmm. cannot think that. And I think one of the most dangerous uh, ways to move about the world is to censor your thoughts in such a way that doesn't allow you to grow when new when you've come across new experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, no, I can't think like that. I can't think like that. That's where the fundamentalism really comes in for the Taremi. Uh, if if we are deciding, well, this thought is wrong and bad just because it is new or different, we are never, ever going to grow. And when two voices subtly hints at his dissenting thoughts to the new mother that he, he guides, um, it's essentially they're encouraged to tamp down that disagreement because essentially she's like, you know, I hope I basically, I hope you come around to our way, the right way of thinking. Otherwise you're going to die. She says, you know, you're a good guard. Like it would be a shame to lose you if you disagreed. So it, it's not uncoerced their agreement. It is very much your life. Your life depends upon it. And any dissent is met with swift and violent reaction. And you have here in your notes that the Wayfarer is an example of of actual harmony, right? Um, different cultures respecting each other, their needs being met, even though they have different needs. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all being met, which is uh, one definition of equity. Uh, we're able to thrive because we respect and honor one another in our differences and in our similarities. Uh, and that's really what this whole book is is about, which is why Carrie and I love it so much. And we see the team working together so well in this chapter seven hours when they are uh, trying to escape from the sublayer. And it's 
everyone again doing doing different things but serving a purpose. Doctor Doctor Chef and Rosemary were meant to be unconscious for this this punch because they don't have an active role normally in in punching through space. And Rosemary vom- has a tendency to vomit when she does <laughs> when she's in the sublayer. Um, but they both don't have a chance to go down. So Doctor Chef immediately goes to provide medical assistance to Ohan, and Rosemary goes to the text and is like, "Give me a job." let me help in any way possible. And that's literally holding a fuel line together and then feeding Kizzy and Jenks, you know, ration bars and water. It's not complicated, um, but she provides an integral role. Kizzy's trying to patch, you know, this falling apart ship back together. Sissix is navigating, you know, with so much skill, but also with limited resources. And she and Corbin have a nice moment where he starts to talk to her and she's like, I don't, if you tell me to care, like, to conserve the algae levels, like I'm going to, I'm going to hurt you. And he's like, no, take everything you need. So for once he's not being stingy. He's, he's forming a new bond with her and they're changing and becoming more of a team. And then we break through uh, back into real space and they have made it. Yay. But, but unfortunately the trip has taken a toll and we have to lose one of the crew or mm-hmm. two of the crew, depending on how you look at it. Uh, but we'll get to Ohan. We'll get to Ohan. Yeah. Next time. Uh, we had, we spend a chapter rebuilding the ship and especially trying to figure out what to do with Lovey, the AI, the sentient AI, uh, who has been horribly damaged by the energy weapon of the Taremi. And we all know from earlier in the book, her deep, romantic relationship with Jenks. Uh, and I, one of the quotations in this book that really jumped out at me in this chapter was uh, from Ashby's perspective. Mm-hmm. And um, Ashby is reflecting on uh, how he has viewed Lovey uh, during his time as captain. This is from Ashby's perspective. There was a hole in the ship now, an emptiness where Lovey's voice used to be It made Ashby realize how unfairly he'd categorized her. When people asked him about his crew, he never said, and of course, there's Lovey, our AI. He hated what that said about him, even though no other captains named AIs as part of their crew. He knew how Jenks felt about Lovey, who didn't, but he'd always seen it as an eccentricity rather than a legitimate truth. Confronted now with the tech's desperate attempts to save her and the threat of losing her entirely, Ashby knew he had been wrong. He found himself trying to remember how he'd spoken to Lovey in the past. Had he been respectful? Had he been as considerate of her time as he was of the rest of the crew? Had he remembered to say thank you? If, when Lovey came out of this, he'd do better by her. That's heartbreaking. And we know at the end of the chapter that she doesn't come out. Right. And I like the moment with Kizzy checking in with Ashby saying, well, no matter what happens, we'll have a functioning AI. And he's like, I don't care about that. And she points out, well, that's like a captain thing. I thought you would care about it. Um, And he has to say, you know, in this case, I care about more than just normal captain things. Sure, the, the ship will continue to function. But what about this crew member? Because of whether she emerges as lovey or as lovelace, the generic out of the box version um, it's a 50-50 chance, and unfortunately, it doesn't go the way that we would hope. Yeah, and it it, it's, it reminds me of, of you know, when like a pet dies and then some, some, you know, person who's not being very considerate says, well, you can just get another dog. 
you know and it's like yeah but i had a relationship with this one who no longer is with us and the next dog isn't going to be like this this one um and hitting too close to home for me (laughs) looking at my buddy no all right yes but that's a good point yeah and and it takes of course it takes the uh possibility of losing this person lovey uh for ashby to realize what she is meant to the crew and i mean that's so true to life right that we don't really recognize how things are how important things are until they're either gone or could be taken away and what does it say about jenks that he is never he hasn't had that same dilemma you know lovey has loved she admits has loved him since the day he installed her and we don't know when his feelings for her developed, but he has always treated her as a full person and gives other AIs the benefit of the doubt, just in case that is what respecting looks like. Yeah. Right. We've seen that earlier in the story, even, even a, an obviously non-sentient AI, like um, screen in a hub somewhere on Port Coriel. Uh, what else do you have about with these chapters? Not much, just, um, more of Kizzy's speciesism that comes out when she's anxious or, you know, exhausted. She does, you know, when she's grappling with all the damage on the ship, she calls the Taremi animals. And I just have been finding that so interesting, this reread, now that I'm purposely watching for it, that from her perspective, we see such a loving, generous person who does have all of these unconscious biases that we see in Harry Potter with Ron Weasley around other, you know, magical species. And that being said, she's she very sweetly invites Rosemary to spend their time off at her little colony planet, um, which I think sounds like a great way to take a vacation. <laughs> right. Uh, speaking of vacations, our vacation from uh, this season of the podcast is going to be two episodes from now. Uh, but we have one more uh, episode with uh, the long way to a small angry planet. Next time we are finishing the book, reading hmm. the chapters, staying, leaving. Flip, 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 flip. The committee. Flip, flip, flip. Maybe maybe people can hear my book flipping. It's in the notes. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> I put it in the notes. And all said and done. Happy reading. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. Please give us a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app so others can discover us too. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians, and on Twitter at nerdychristians, where I occasionally tweet bad memes. You can find Adam on Twitter at RevAdamThomas or on his website, adamthomas.net. Planar Steel's sequel to last year's Vampire Mist is out now, where you too can find out what happens when you touch the big shiny at the top of the tower. And as always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Piece by piece and person by person, may you build a beloved community, trusting and hopeful, open to any and inviting to all. May you and those you travel with be part of the love of God that transforms the world. Amen. Amen.